Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 41, 1 Samuel chapters 26 and 27. Last week we concluded the episode in David's life when Abigail, Abigail, interceded in her husband Nabal's fight with David by convincing David that he shouldn't take vengeance into his own hands. God is David's avenger. Surely he will act to punish Nabal for his lack of charity and and the disrespect he showed to God's anointed Nagid, king-in-waiting for Israel. Well, David relented and the scriptures make it clear that it was in David's best interests that he left the matter in the Lord's hands. Had he not, he would have committed the sin of blood guilt, unjustifiable killing of a man. And while there's no way for us to know for certain, it is likely that this would have derailed David's opportunity to be king of Israel. Because the sin of blood guilt is among the worst possible trespasses against the Lord. There's no atonement available for it. Would God have allowed such a man to replace an already failed king? It's highly questionable. Sure enough, in but a matter of days, Nabal had a stroke and he died. And while the verses don't specifically say that Nabal's death was Yehovah avenging David, it is made clear that Nabal's death was perceived, at least, as being a divine act. David certainly felt it was God's justice at work, and yet, what exactly was Nabal's crime? So far as we know, it was primarily insulting David. and acting without charity, perhaps behaving unfairly according to the customs of the day. But even acknowledging that Nabal was a godless fool, as attested by his own name, there appears to be no direct violation of Torah law worthy of capital punishment. So the question is, was Nabal's death directly for the purpose of avenging David? Answer? I doubt it. Nabal was simply a wicked and unsavory man, and apparently the Lord determined that his death would serve kingdom purposes more than his continuing life. I can assure you that if this thing happened today, with Nabal, it would be said that while it was coincidental to the conflict of, with David, Nabal died of natural causes. The Lord gives and he takes away life at his own good pleasure. And for reasons that are rarely apparent to the living. This is an attribute of Yehovah that is among the most mysterious and bothersome for us to accept. But it is so. 
knowing a good thing when he saw one, David sent messengers to Nabal's widow, Abigail, asked her to become his wife. She immediately agreed. The same passage at the end of chapter 25 tells us two other things about David's marital status. First, he married another woman as well as Abigail, and her name was Ahinoam. Secondly, King Saul spitefully took David's first wife, Michal, and gave her as wife to another man, Faltiel. Since there was no divorce by David of Michal, essentially Michal was married to two men simultaneously. Now, whether Saul's rash act was the result of getting word of David's two new wives and being offended by it, or if it was a way of severing official familial connections with David, we don't know. But it matters not, for the effect was the same. As a result of this, all hope of reconciliation between David and Saul ended. So as of the end of chapter 25, David technically had three wives. Michal, Achinoam, and Abigail. Now, practically speaking, he had only two. But the two he had were as much about politics as was his original bride, Saul's daughter Michal. Ahinoam and Abigail were from two different and important clans of the tribe of David, uh, tribe of uh, Judah. David's marriage into those clans built up goodwill and gave him access and influence within three powerful clans that helped form the tribe of Judah. Of course, that third one is counting his own clan, the clan of Jesse, Yeshai. This would all help pave the way for his eventual coronation as king of Judah. Well, let's pick up David's story in 1 Samuel chapter 26 which in the complete Jewish Bible is page 328. The people from Ziph went to Shaul and Givah and said, David is hiding himself on Hachelah Hill across from Yeshmon. And then Shaul sent out and went down to the Ziph desert with 3,000 men chosen from Israel to search for David in the Ziph Desert. Shaul pitched camp on Hachalah Hill, across from Yeshmon, near the road. David was staying in the desert, and he saw that Saul had come into the desert after him, so David dispatched spies and determined that Saul had definitely come. Now David set out and went to where Saul had pitched his camp, and he saw where Saul and Avner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping. Saul was lying inside the barricade with his troops sleeping all around him. David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Avishai the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, who'll go down with me to Saul to Shaul in the camp? And Avishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Avishai went to the soldiers by night. Shaul was lying there asleep inside the barricade and his spear was stuck in the ground next to his head with Avner and the troops all asleep all around him. Avishai said to David, 
God has handed your enemy over to you today. Please, let me pin him to the ground with just one stroke of this spear. I won't strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Nobody can raise his hand against Adonai's anointed without becoming guilty. David then added, as Adonai lives, Adonai will strike him down, or the, the day will come for him to die, or he'll go into battle and he'll be swept away. But Adonai forbid that I should raise my hand against Adonai's anointed. But now, we'll take the spear by his head and the jug of water and we'll get out of here. So David took the spear and the water jug from Shaul's head and he got away and nobody saw or knew about it. No one awoke because they were all asleep. A deep sleep from Adonai had fallen over them. Now David crossed to the other side and he climbed to the top of the distant ridge, leaving a a considerable space between them. And David called out to the troops, to Abner, the son of Ner, Abner, aren't you going to answer me? And Abner answered, who are you calling to the king? And David said to Abner, oh, aren't you the brave one? Who is there in Israel to compare with you? So why haven't you kept watch over your lord, the king? Someone came in to kill the king, your lord. Uh, That's not good what you've done. As Adonai lives, you deserve to die because you didn't keep watch over your lord. (coughs) Adonai's anointed. Now, see where the king's spear is in the jug of water that was next to his head. Shaul recognized David's voice. David's voice says, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord king. And he continued, Why is my lord chasing his servant? What have I done? What evil am I planning? Please, now, may my lord the king hear what his servant is saying. If it is Adonai who has stirred you up against me, let him receive an offering. But if it's human beings, then a curse on them before Adonai, because as things stand today, they've driven me out. So that I can no longer share in Adonai's inheritance. They've said, go, serve other gods. Now don't let my blood fall on the ground away from the presence of Adonai. The king of Israel has gone out in search of a single flea, as though he were hunting partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, my son David. I won't harm you any longer because you regarded my life as precious today. Yes, I've behaved like a fool. I was altogether in the wrong. And David answered, Here's the king's spear. Send a man over to bring it back. And Adonai will give every person a reward suited to his uprightness and faithfulness. Adonai put you in my power today. But I wouldn't raise my hand against Adonai's anointed. Look, just as I put great value on your life today, so may my life be given great value by Adonai. May he deliver me from every kind of trouble. Saul answered David, Blessings on you, my son David. No question you will accomplish everything you set out to do. So David went on his way. Saul returned to his place. Here we find David in an all too familiar situation. Saul was once again in pursuit of him and his men and it didn't take long. 
for the anti-king to forget and rationalize away his tearful words that he spoke to David as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul told David that surely David was God's anointed king and he was so worthy of that position. Shaul was so certain of David's rise to the throne and Jehovah's hand in it that he had asked him to promise that he wouldn't kill Saul's children and descendants but rather would show them kindness. Since David will be the focus of our study now for months on end, I'd like to make a couple of comments. As I was looking at what various Hebrew sages and Christian commentators thought about this ongoing transition from Saul to David, and whether we can count on the accuracy of the scriptures in this regard, there were some pretty startling conclusions they made. While rabbis and Hebrew scholars tend to make David as nearly flawless and thus have no real problem with the scriptures as written except to fancifully explain away David's fupas, the more liberal Christian scholars and disciples of the literary criticism approach to Bible study have always felt that what we read in Samuel regarding David is more propaganda than truth. That essentially what we're reading is a lot of after-the-fact rewriting of history by those who were loyal to King David to make David look good. And thus, to accomplish that, Saul had to appear, unfairly, as a supervillain. Now, early on in our study of 1 Samuel, I explained that we needed to view Saul as a type of anti-king, anti-Christ, as opposed to David as a type of God-anointed Messiah. And that this is a pattern that we're going to see persist right on through Revelation. And I say unapologetically that Saul ought to be viewed by us about the same way that we would view Hitler or even Lucifer. Here, however, is the view of Otto Themius, a leading Christian commentator from Germany writing in the mid-1800s when Germany was the center of modern Christian exegesis and doctrinal development. Those views remain the prominent views within Christianity in our time. Okay? Here then is Theneus' view on King Saul. Here's what he says. Saul would have been a moral monster, which he evidently wasn't, if he had pursued David with quiet deliberation and through the medium of the same persons and sought his life again after his own life had been so magnanimously spared by David. I hope you catch the essence of what Theneus is thinking on the matter is because he represents a very common approach to analyzing Holy Scriptures since the late 1700s. And it is that certain Bible passages are not to be trusted if an intellectual Bible scholar feels that they have a better solution. This is the same approximate period 
that the modern allegorical method of approaching the Bible also erupted. A method that dominates the institutional church today. The thinking is that Saul couldn't possibly be all that bad. Because no human could be so mean and or morally depraved as to have their own life spared and then to determine to kill the person who had spared it. Therefore, the only logical conclusion for an intelligent person is that the scripture is faulty and corrupt. And instead, we need to see Saul more sympathetically and David is significantly less approved by God than what we read. That we need to give Saul and David a better, more even balance. And of course, this view is embedded in most of what is written and taught on this matter for the last two centuries. Now, not only is there no evidence to back up that view, but rather it revolves only around a learned scholar's personal views and agenda, but such a view has done great violence to the Bible itself. Because if we're going to pick and choose which parts to believe and which parts to discredit or even discard, then what credence can we give to any of it? This narrative of 1 Samuel chapter 26 tells of even a second opportunity for David to end Saul's life and thus accelerate by his own hand his rise to the throne of Israel. An opportunity, by the way, which David refuses. Verse 1 explains that the residents of Sif, you see the Dead Sea here, it's just over the, just over the hills, all right, um, to, to the west of the uh, Dead Sea. That the residents of Ziph again betrayed David by going to Saul and informing him of David's whereabouts. Now, why the leaders of Ziph are so adamantly against David, one can only speculate. Saul took 3,000 soldiers with him, as he had before when seeking David, and he left immediately. Now, in the earlier incident, when the members of Ziph came to Saul with similar intelligence... Okay. The king was grateful, but he wasn't convinced that the men of Ziph actually knew where David was. So he asked them to verify it and then report back. Saul wasn't about to send 3,000 men on an expedition without some assurances. It turned out that the men of Ziph were correct. And even though after Saul had surrounded David, he had to withdraw because the Philistines took the opportunity to invade Israel, Zif, the men of Zif's information was correct. So this time, when the men of Zif came to him concerning David's location, he believed them, and he responded without hesitation. Well, when Saul and his troops arrived to the wilderness area surrounding Zif, they camped by the road that led up to this hill of Hachilah, where apparently David and his men were currently residing. David's spies spot Saul's army. They inform David, and David sends more spies to reconnoiter. Once David got the surveillance information that he sought, he waited until an opportune moment 
and snuck up on the encampment after nightfall. He saw that Avner, Avner, my father is Ner, the supreme general of Saul's army, had come along with him this time. And that Saul was sleeping in this protected area with soldiers all around him to guard him. Abner was nearest to Saul, acting as his personal bodyguard. And in verse 6, David asks, among his most trusted men, who would go with him down to the enemy camp? And a fellow named Avishai volunteered. Now we're told that Avishai, which means my father is Yishai, or my father is Jesse, was the son of Zeruah, the brother of Joab, Joab. And as we might expect, Avishai was a close relative of David because it was customary and it was safer to have your inner circle consist primarily of family members who have a lot to gain by seeing to your good health. Thus the name Avishai lets everyone know that he's part of Jesse's clan. Zeruah was Jesse's daughter. She was David's sister. So Avishai was David's nephew. Zeruah was mother to Avishai, Yoav, and Asahel. Avishai is commander of David's army. And so naturally, he can't refuse to go with David down to Saul's camp because the army commander is always also the leader's chief protector. Why did David want to go down to Saul's camp? Had he actually changed his mind and now he wanted to confront Saul and finish him off? No, I'm sure that Abishai thought so. But David was still intent on proving his innocence to the king, as naive as that thought might be. God blessed those intentions as risky and unwise as they were. The men that were supposed to be guarding Saul not only fell into a sleep, but a deep sleep. We are to understand that the Lord induced in them this soundness of sleep such that the normally super aware warriors who would stir at the sound of a stick cracking would be oblivious to David and Avishai's presence in their camp. So noiselessly, these two creep closer until they stand looming over the king himself. Shaul's spear, which had become his scepter, his symbol of reign and authority, was stuck in the ground next to him with Abner, Saul's chief general, just inches away. Abishai naturally concluded that as unlikely as it is that they could ever get this close to the king and still be alive could only mean that the God of Israel had his hand in this and has turned Saul over to them for execution. In verse 8, Avishai essentially says, Let me do it. I want to do it. He says that using Saul's own spear, he'd kill him with one stroke. Certainly won't be a need for a second one. But David stays 
Abishai's hand. And he tells them not to destroy Saul because nobody can raise his hand against Adonai's anointed king without becoming guilty himself. For David, you see, Saul is still the rightful king, the rightful God-appointed king. And he can't bring himself to have Saul killed because he would see that as an affront to God. He goes on to say that if Adonai wants to kill him, or if Saul dies in battle, that's another matter. David's not going to kill him, and he's not going to have him killed. In fact, David is probably saying that it's certain that Saul will be killed at the Lord's hand in the Lord's timing, because he's undoubtedly thinking back to what happened with Nabal. And when David tells Abishai not to destroy Saul, it's a little different than saying don't kill him. See, the Hebrew is all tashiteu. And it means to mutilate. It means to deface. It means to terribly corrupt. And the idea is that while killing the king would indeed bring on the sin of blood guilt, there is also another sin piled on that if one would kill the king in a way that disgracefully defigures him. as something that's just not done to a king. Actually, this statement mostly represents the customs of the times when even an enemy king is seen as above most other mortals. So he must be accorded special privileges even in his death. Instead, the two men abscond with Saul's spear and his water canteen as proof of their presence and then they leave as stealthily as they arrived. And once they were sufficiently far away so as not to be captured, David shouts toward Saul's camp and the bleary-eyed soldiers awaken to their embarrassment. David specifically calls out Avner's name in order to humiliate him. Using unrestrained sarcasm. David wants to know how is it? How could it be that Saul's highest officer and best warrior has allowed the enemy to stand over his king, able to kill him in an instant? And neither Abner or his soldiers were even aware of their presence. And he holds up the king's spear and his water jug as proof of his claim. By all rights, Abner and his men should have been ordered executed by the king for being derelict in their duty to guard him. It's the duty of all the soldiers to protect their king at all costs. They failed miserably. Saul awakens amid all this shouting and confusion and he hears a familiar voice. And he asks rhetorically if the voice is that of his son, David. David confirms it. Abner is stunned. He's humiliated, and so he's silent. As the king inquires after David, and David responds by politely and submissively asking for permission to speak. <clears throat> David's still searching 
for the cause of this irrational hatred of Saul against him. And so he tells the king, look, if it's God who's instigated this conflict between us, then then they should make an offering to God in hopes that that he'll reverse course and take Saul's anger away. What David actually says is, May God ruach mincha. And it literally means to smell the smoke of a sacrifice. And we discussed in our study of the book of Leviticus how the smoke of the offering was seen as all important. Because see, the idea was that the smoke wafted up to the heavens where God would smell it and be appeased because it meant that his people were being obedient to his commands to make sacrifices of atonement. Well, the bottom line is that if Saul's paranoia has been brought about by God as some sort of punishment, then may the Lord show mercy. But if this is all just the wicked inclinations of men at work, may they be accursed. The last part of verse 19 expresses at least part of David's concern for himself, his own well-being. It is that he's been driven out. He can't he no longer has any part of Lord's inherit of the Lord's inheritance. What does that mean? Do you remember what the Lord's inheritance is? It's the land. That's the Lord's inheritance. It's always been since Abraham. It's the land. Every Hebrew's inheritance is the land of Canaan. So David is saying that because of this irrational and unjust war upon him, he's been denied the ability to live peacefully within the promised land. Those who are doing this to him are essentially telling David, ah, go worship other gods. What does exile from the promised land have to do with worshiping other gods? See, we're dealing with an ancient superstition that still held that gods are territorial. David and Saul both believed that. Each nation had its own set of gods. And when you crossed a national boundary into another country, you left one set of gods behind, you came into the sphere of influence of the gods of the territory you've just entered. So if David was unable to live in Israel, then he'd have no choice but to live in some other nation and worship that nation's gods since Jehovah had no influence anywhere but in Israel. That was the thinking. So for Saul to unjustly chase one of God's chosen out of his own inheritance and away from God's presence actually amounted to a capital offense against the God of Israel who owns the land of Israel and rules over them through a king now. So David is saying... He certainly didn't want to die outside of Israel, away from Jehovah's presence, 
And even this had to do with the ancient mindset of ancestor worship and what happens after you die. Now the last few words of verse 20 (laughs) totally lose their meaning when translated into English. Those words say that the king of Israel is chasing a worthless man as though he was hunting partridge. Now actually... There's some memorable wordplay going on here. Let's see if I can explain it in a very brief fashion. The Hebrew word for partridge is hakore. Hakore. And it literally means the caller. So we have David standing on a mountain calling to Abner and Saul and he parallels Saul's chasing after him to the hunting of the collar, the partridge. And in verse 14, Abner says, Kore," Or, who is it that calls? Or more literally, who are you, O caller? So David turns the tables and he mocks Abner's words by referring to himself as Hakore. The caller, a partridge. I, David, the caller, the hakore. David says that he's the calling bird, a partridge, who's being hunted in the mountains by Saul and Abner. Now remember that this story, like all other stories in the Bible, was handed down by word of mouth for generation after generation before it was eventually all written down. So this interesting wordplay was undoubtedly the highlight of the story and probably brought on laughter from the audience as it was retold around the campfire. Now, reminiscent of their encounter in Ein Saul turns all mushy on David. And he calls him his son. And he pleads with him to come home to the king's palace. He promises he won't do any evil to David anymore. And that once again, David has proven his loyalty by sparing Saul's life. Well, David's pretty well figured out that Saul's word means nothing. So basically, his response to the king ignores the king's offer. David instead offers to return the king's spear, which is Paul's, rather, uh, Shaul's scepter. And he tells Saul to send one of his soldiers over to come and fetch it. David has finally come to grips, even though only momentarily, with the heavenly reality that our reward for righteousness and faithfulness comes not from other men, but from the Lord. Now, while it ought to be reasonably expected, that, like Autothenius thought, that Saul would return good for good, in reality, the only guarantor of receiving a blessing for our righteous behavior is Jehovah. And that may not even come in this life. Maybe it'll be later. See, this foundational but critical God principle is found in the New Testament in, in, in a number of forms. Let me just read a couple to you. You don't have to turn there. In Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Be careful not to parade your acts of zedekah, 
charity, goodness, in front of people in order, for, in order to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you do say to God, don't announce it with trumpets to win people's praise, like the hypocrites in the synagogues and on the streets. Yes, I tell you, they already have their reward. But you, when you do righteous acts, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Then your good deeds will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what you do in secret, He will reward you. Romans 2.7 to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality by perseverance and doing good, he will pay back eternal life. Saul has the final word. <laughs> he actually bestows a, a blessing, a bercha, upon David and says, You know, David, whatever you undertake, you will surely achieve it. And the two men parted, and in life they would never see each other again. Soon, just as the Lord took care of matters with Nabal, he would take care of matters with Saul. And David would avoid any blood on his hands, at least as far as dealing with Saul. But the reality is that heroes are some of the most flawed men on the planet. And David is chief among them. This will be well demonstrated in the next chapter. So let's turn to Samuel chapter 27. We'll get just a short start on it today. We're going to read the whole chapter and just spend just a few minutes on it. Finish it next week. David said to himself... One day Saul's going to sweep me away. The best thing for me to do is to escape into the territory of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up trying to find me here or there in Israel's territory, and at least I'll be free of him. So David set out with his 600 men and passed on to Achish, the son of Mauch, king of Gath. David lived with Achish, he and his men, each man with his household, including David with his two wives, Achinoam from Yisrael and Avigail from Carmel, Nabal's widow. Saul was told that David had escaped to Gath, whereupon he stopped searching for him. And David said to Achish, if you are now favorably disposed towards me, let me have a place to live in one of the cities in the countryside. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That very day, Akish gave him Ziklag. And that's why to this day, Ziklag belongs to the kings of Judah. Now, after David had been living in the country of the Philistines for a year and four months, he and his men began going up and raiding the Gerushi, the Gizri, and the Melekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land in the direction of Shur all the way to Egypt. And David would attack the land, leaving alive neither men nor women, but taking the sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothing, and then he'd go and return to Achish, and Achish would ask, Where are you raiding today? And David would answer, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Yerach Meli, or against the Negev of the Kenites. The reason David spared neither men nor women to be brought to Gath is that he thought, We don't want them telling on us. 
saying, David did so-and-so. That's how he conducted his raids for as long as he lived in the country of the Philistines. And so Achish believed him. And he said, David has caused his own people, Israel, to despise him utterly. He'll be my servant forever. Here's a chapter that shoots a lot of holes in liberal theologians' theories that most of the book of Samuel was created as propaganda to validate David's dynasty replacing Saul's. No writer or editor whose goal it is to make David seem worthy, let alone perfect, would justify his position by including what we have just read in Samuel 27. If ever there was a time when David had the blood of innocence dripping from his hands and when his mouth was was contorted with lies and deceptions, this is the one. But I think as we delve into this episode, you're going to see it's even worse than it first appears. Something has shifted in David's thinking. It, it, It may have been the encounter in chapter 26 in the Zeph wilderness, but it was probably equally as much that Saul had viciously given David's wife, Michal, to another man. It's, it's hard to put into words the extreme injury and insult to David's honor that occurred with that act. Nonetheless, David no longer believed that he could remain in Judah. David concluded that Saul was going to hound him until one or the other of them were dead. So David took the drastic step of once again going to the Philistines. He went back to the same place, Gath, where he had feigned insanity only a few years earlier in order to survive. But there's a difference. Big difference. David first went to Gath as a lone fugitive looking for sanctuary and mercy. He was rejected. This time he went as the leader of a substantial army and he had something to offer. Services to the king of Gath in return for a good living and protection from King Saul. At least the king of Gath, from his point of view, would divide and conquer, so to speak, by allowing David to come and stay. David was probably the most single influential force at this time within the tribe of Judah, and therefore the territory of Judah. There is little chance that any clan of Judah would now give their full loyalty to Saul, a leader of the northern coalition of Israelite tribes. So Akish, the Philistine Akish, undoubtedly figured, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Even if he didn't fully trust David, David was Saul's mortal enemy, and that was useful for the Philistines. Judah would now be more cooperative with the Philistines, with David as an ally and a resident. 
So now the Philistines could focus all of their military assets on the remainder of Israel to the north. Well, it seems that this time, Achish welcomed David and housed David and his small army in the city of Gath as his guests. It's clear that David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, went with him. And when Saul heard about all this, indeed he abandoned his pursuit of David, which is what David hoped he would do. Some time passes. Verse 5 has David approaching the king of Gath and asking to be given territory of his own rather than having to continue to live under Achish's nose. Philistine territory, of course. Well, what we find is that David has essentially become a favored vassal to the Philistine king as Achish grants him his request. See, this isn't at all unlike the feudal system of old in in Eastern Europe. David supplies military assistance to the king, and in return, the king grants David some territory he can lord over and gives him a little more independence. No doubt for Achish it made sense to give David a little space. I mean, it couldn't have looked very good for this foreigner with his own army, loyal only to David, to live in the capital city of their supposed master, Achish. Moving them out to the countryside kind of solved that problem. But it also removed the rather irksome restraints that David would have been under for obvious political reasons. So we see in verse 6 that that very day, meaning Achish didn't have to think about David's request very long, he'd probably been waiting for it, the city of Ziklag was assigned to David. It was a logical choice, as Ziklag previously belonged to Judah. Now it was under Philistine control. But even being considered part of Judah was, was a recent development. Ziklag was originally assigned by Moses and Joshua to the tribe of Simeon. That it became part of Judah demonstrates something we've discussed before. It is that in a tribal system, there's no end to each tribe attempting to increase its own influence and to become the most dominant tribe in the region. Already, during Saul's reign, the tribe of Simeon was substantially absorbed by the tribe of Judah. This was not accomplished by means of pleasantries, but by tribal warfare for the most part. By the time David would die and King Solomon take over, Simeon essentially had all but disappeared as a separate tribal entity and the people and the territory of Simeon just virtually became rolled into Judah. We're going to stop here and continue with David's time in Philistia next week.